Clause 6, Trial of Impeachment. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Clause 6 grants to the Senate the sole power to try impeachments and spells out the basic procedures for impeachment trials. The Supreme Court has interpreted this clause to mean that the Senate has exclusive and unreviewable authority to determine what constitutes an adequate impeachment trial. Of the 19 federal officials formally impeached by the House of Representatives, four resigned, so that proceedings were dismissed, seven were acquitted, and eight, all judges, were convicted by the Senate. On another occasion, the Senate declined to proceed with the impeachment of Senator William Blunt in 1797, asserting that the House had no jurisdiction over members of the Senate. In any case, Blunt had already been expelled from the Senate. The Constitution's framers vested the Senate with this power for several reasons. First, they believed senators would be better educated, more virtuous, and more high-minded than members of the House of Representatives and thus uniquely able to decide responsibly the most difficult of the political questions. Second, they believed that the Senate, being a numerous body, would be well-suited to handle the procedural demands of an impeachment trial, in which it, unlike judges and the judiciary system, would never be tied down by such strict rules, either in the delineation of the offense by the prosecutor, or in the construction of it by judges, as in the common cases serve to limit the discretion of courts in favor of personal security. Alexander Hamilton, The Federalist No. 65. There are three constitutionally mandated requirements for impeachment trials. The provision that senators must sit on oath or affirmation was designed to impress upon them the extreme seriousness of the occasion. The stipulation that the Chief Justice is to preside over presidential impeachment trials underscores the solemnity of the occasion, and aims to avoid the conflict of interest of a Vice President presiding over the proceeding for the removal of the one official standing between them and the Presidency. The latter consideration was regarded to be quite important in the 18th century, political parties had not yet formed when the Constitution was adopted, and with the original method of electing the President and Vice President it was presumed that the two people elected to those offices would frequently be political rivals. The specification that a two-thirds supermajority vote of those senators present in order to convict was also thought necessary to facilitate serious deliberation and to make removal possible only through a consensus that cuts across factional divisions. Clause 7, Judgment in Cases of Impeachment, Punishment on Conviction. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust or profit under the United States but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, according to law. If any officer or the president or the vice president is convicted of impeachment, that person is immediately removed from office and may be barred from holding any federal office in the future. This is purely a political remedy which touches neither his person, nor his property, but simply divests him of his political capacity, however the convicted person remains liable to trial and punishment in the courts for civil and criminal charges. The President cannot reinstate an impeached officer with his Article II appointment power if such officers have been disqualified to hold any future federal office as part of their conviction. Section 4, Congressional Elections and Sessions. Clause 1, Time, Place, and Manner of Holding Elections. The times, places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives, shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. The purpose of this clause is twofold. First, it makes clear the division of responsibility with respect to the conduct of the election of federal senators and representatives. 
that responsibility lies primarily with the states and secondarily with Congress. Second, the clause lodges the power to regulate elections in the respective legislative branches of the states and the federal government. As authorized by this clause, Congress has set a uniform date for federal elections, the Tuesday following the first Monday in November. Presently, as there are no on-point federal regulations, the states retain the authority to regulate the dates on which other aspects of the election process are held, registration, primary elections, etc., and where elections will be held. As for regulating the manner of elections, the Supreme Court has interpreted this to mean matters like notices, registration, supervision of voting, protection of voters, prevention of fraud and corrupt practices, counting of votes, duties of inspectors and canvassers, and making and publication of election returns. The Supreme Court has held that states may not exercise their power to determine the manner of holding elections to impose term limits on their congressional delegation. One of the most significant ways that each state regulates the manner of elections is through their power to draw electoral districts. Although in theory Congress could draw the district map for each state, it has not exercised this level of oversight. Congress has, however, required the states to conform to certain practices when drawing districts. States are currently required to use a single-member district scheme, whereby the state is divided into as many election districts for representatives in the House of Representatives as the size of its representation in that body, that is to say, representatives cannot be elected at large from the whole state unless the state has only one representative in the House, nor can districts elect more than one representative. The Supreme Court has interpreted by the legislature thereof to include the state governor's veto, and the initiative process, in those states whose constitutions provide it. Congress first exercised its power to regulate elections nationwide in 1842, when the 27th Congress passed a law requiring the election of representatives by districts. In subsequent years, Congress expanded on the requirements, successively adding contiguity, compactness, and substantial equality of population to the districting requirements. These standards were all later deleted in the Reapportionment Act of 1929. Congress subsequently reinstated the requirement that districts be composed of contiguous territory, be compact, and have equal populations within each state. Congress has allowed those requirements to lapse, but the Supreme Court has reimposed the population requirement on the states under the Equal Protection Clause and is suspicious of districts that do not meet the other traditional districting criteria of compactness and contiguity. In 1865, Congress legislated a remedy for a situation under which deadlocks in state legislatures over the election of senators were creating vacancies in the office. The Act required the two houses of each legislature to meet in joint session on a specified day and to meet every day thereafter until a senator was selected. The first comprehensive federal statute dealing with elections was adopted in 1870 as a means of enforcing the 15th Amendment's guarantee against racial discrimination and granting suffrage rights. Under the Enforcement Act of 1870, and subsequent laws, false registration, bribery, voting without legal right, making false returns of votes cast, interference in any manner with officers of election, and the neglect by any such officer of any duty required by state or federal law were made federal offenses. Provision was made for the appointment by federal judges of persons to attend at places of registration and at elections with authority to challenge any person proposing to register or vote unlawfully, to witness the counting of votes, and to identify by their signatures the registration of voters and election tally sheets. Beginning with the Tillman Act of 1907, Congress has imposed a growing number of restrictions on elections and campaign financing. The most significant piece of legislation has been the 1971 Federal Election Campaign Act. It was this legislation that was at issue in the Supreme Court's seminal decision, Buckley v. Vallejo, 1976, which, in the face of a First Amendment challenge, set the ground rules for campaign finance legislation, 
generally disallowing restrictions on expenditures by candidates, but permitting restrictions on contributions by individuals and corporations. In addition to statutory constraints, Congress and the states have altered the electoral process through amending the Constitution, first in the above-mentioned 15th Amendment. The 17th Amendment altered the manner of conducting the elections of senators, establishing that they are to be elected by the people of the states. Also, the 19th Amendment prohibits any U.S. citizen from being denied the right to vote on the basis of sex. The 24th Amendment prohibits both Congress and the states from conditioning the right to vote in federal elections on payment of a poll tax or other types of tax. And the 26th Amendment prohibits the states and the federal government from using age as a reason for denying the right to vote to U.S. citizens who are at least 18 years old. Clause 2, Sessions of Congress. The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall be on the first Monday in December, unless they shall by law appoint a different day. Clause 2 fixes an annual date upon which Congress must meet. By doing so, the Constitution empowers Congress to meet, whether or not the President called it into session. Article 2, Section 3 does grant the President limited authority to convene and adjourn both houses, or either of them, and mandates that it will meet at least once in a year to enact legislation on behalf of the people. Some delegates to the 1787 Constitutional Convention believed yearly meetings were not necessary, for there would not be enough legislative business for Congress to deal with annually. Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts argued that the time should be fixed to prevent disputes from arising within the legislature, and to allow the states to adjust their elections to correspond with the fixed date. A fixed date also corresponded to the tradition in the states of having annual meetings. Finally, Gorham concluded that the legislative branch should be required to meet at least once a year to act as a check upon the executive department. Although this clause provides that the annual meeting was to be on the first Monday in December, the government established by the 1787 Constitution did not begin operations until March 4, 1789. As the first Congress held its initial meeting on March 4, that became the date on which new representatives and senators took office in subsequent years. Therefore, Every other year, although a new Congress was elected in November, it did not come into office until the following March, with a lame duck session convening in the interim. This practice was altered in 1933 following ratification of the 20th Amendment, which states, in Section 2, that, the Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall begin at noon on the third day of January, unless they shall by law appoint a different day. This change virtually eliminated the necessity of there being a lame duck session of Congress. Section 5, Procedure. Clause 1, Electoral Judgment, Quorum. Each House shall be the judge of the elections, returns and qualifications of its own members, and a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business, but a smaller number may adjourn from day to day, and may be authorized to compel the attendance of absent members, in such manner, and under such penalties as each House may provide. Section 5 states that a majority of each House constitutes a quorum to do business, a smaller number may adjourn the House or compel the attendance of absent members. In practice, the quorum requirement is not followed, as a quorum is assumed to be present unless a quorum call, requested by a member, proves otherwise. Rarely do members ask for quorum calls to demonstrate the absence of a quorum, more often, they use the quorum call as a delaying tactic. Sometimes, unqualified individuals have been admitted to Congress. For instance, the Senate once admitted John Henry Eaton, a 28-year-old, in 1818, the admission was inadvertent, as Eaton's birth date was unclear at the time. In 1934, a 29-year-old, Rush Holt, was elected to the Senate. He agreed to wait six months, until his 30th birthday, to take the oath. The Senate ruled in that case that the age requirement applied as of the date of the taking of the oath, not the date of election. Clause 2, Rules. 
each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and, with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. Each house can determine its own rules, assuming a quorum is present, and may punish any of its members. A two-thirds vote is necessary to expel a member. Section 5, Clause 2 does not provide specific guidance to each house regarding when and how each house may change its rules, leaving details to the respective chambers. Clause 3, Record of Proceedings. Each house shall keep a journal of its proceedings, and from time to time publish the same, accepting such parts as may in their judgment require secrecy, and the yeas and nays of the members of either house on any question shall, at the desire of one-fifth of those present, be entered on the journal. Each house must keep and publish a journal, though it may choose to keep any part of the journal secret. The proceedings of the house are recorded in the journal, if one-fifth of those present, assuming a quorum is present, request it, the votes of the members on a particular question must also be entered. Clause 4, Adjournment. Neither house, during the session of Congress, shall, without the consent of the other, adjourn for more than three days, nor to any other place than that in which the two houses shall be sitting. Neither house may adjourn, without the consent of the other, for more than three days. Often, a house will hold pro forma sessions every three days, such sessions are merely held to fulfill the constitutional requirement, and not to conduct business. Furthermore, neither house may meet in any place other than the designated for both houses, the capital, without the consent of the other house. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.